We're going to be in Acts chapter 9 this evening, Acts chapter 9, and we're going to be covering from enemy to friend. So uh, on Wednesday night during our prayer meeting, during our prayer service, I asked if anybody could take a wild guess at what text that was, and uh, y'all got it. We're talking about the conversion of a man who impacted the world for uh, the kingdom of God. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9, looking at the first uh, several verses there. But before we get to the text, I think we have to have a proper understanding, a good understanding of what is going on leading up to this text uh, in Acts chapter 9. We know that a couple weeks ago, um, Dr. Spivey preached on the ascension. Why stand there gazing uh, in Acts chapter 1 and the ascension of Christ and the impact that had on the believers on the disciples at that time, and how it, uh, they realized not only uh, was their Savior alive, but he is reigning, and he is commissioning them. He's telling them what to do. And so now they're motivated. They're going to live out their faith. But then not only that, we enter chapter 2, and what happens there? It's preached on last week, day of Pentecost, right? Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches this sermon that I doubt he even realized what was going to happen. We uh, enter into uh, now a season of whenever believers are, uh, the Holy Spirit is now dwelling in them as the church, and now they're going out and preaching. And then we have in chapter um, 7 a man named Stephen who is preaching. And he is preaching through the Old Testament, and what we have in this Old Testament, he's, he's preaching through it, and then getting to the uh, culmination of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, in Acts chapter 2, during, with Peter's sermon, 3,000 souls, it says, are added to the church. How was the reaction in Acts chapter 7? Was it the same? It certainly wasn't, because if you look in Acts chapter 7, toward the end of the chapter, verse 54 we see, it says, Now when they heard this, they being the people to whom Stephen was preaching, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. I don't know uh, if you've ever been that mad in your life, but they, I mean, they are, they are so livid that they are just, it says gnashing their teeth, grinding their teeth, because they are so mad. How dare you preach this man named Jesus? And from this, what happens to Stephen? It says in verse 58, When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named who? Saul. So they uh, decide to stone him. They do that. They lay their coats so it wouldn't hinder them. of a young man named Saul. Now we see not only was Saul for this, Saul was uh, behind it, essentially. It says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. So why would this man named Saul, who uh, is a Jew, hearing this message not only be offended by it and not only want to persecute people preaching this message, but want to kill them? What is his motive behind this? Why is he wanting to do this? Well, to understand this, I think you have to go 
You have to go further back than even Acts, the book of Acts, and just look at uh, the life of, of this man named Saul and uh, his background. Well, Saul was from Tarsus, and this place is uh, today borders modern-day Syria and Turkey, and uh, it's a distinct, it was a distinguished place. Is known for its university, and so he was. He was definitely uh, brought up in a solid, uh, faithful Jewish home. Now, his father, if you look with me in uh, the 23rd chapter of Acts, in the uh, sixth verse, we see uh, it reads, "But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and other Pharisees, Paul began crying out." Uh, in the council, brethren, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. So spoiler alert, see, uh, spoiler alert he ends up getting saved. So you'll find, if you didn't know that, that's what's going to happen. Anyway, you see that his father uh, was a Pharisee as well. And his father was also a Roman citizen. So you have Saul, he's a Roman citizen. And uh, at some point, and he's also a Jew. And at some point in his life, probably around the age of 13 or so, uh, he was sent to Jerusalem to learn under a faithful Jewish rabbi, Jewish teacher, Pharisee scholar by the name of Gamaliel. Now this man, it, I mean, anybody and everybody that was a Jew wanted to learn under him. If you could send your son to learn under this man, I mean, you had the greatest education that a Jew could receive. This man was uh, elite. He, he knew um, the Old Testament, or he knew about the Old Testament, I, sh- I, I would think is more accurately uh, put. But uh, also in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, we read, uh, it says, I'm a Jew, this is Paul speaking, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus, of Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. So with this education, he's a Hellenistic Jew, so he, Saul is, and he gets this education, and because of it becomes a very rigid, uh, legalistic Jew, an expert in the law, I'm sure he had uh, huge portions of the Old Testament memorized, just being constantly trained and educated under this man. So, he knows the Old Testament. He's not only familiar with it, he has significant portions of it memorized. But, uh, this also kind of gives a a reason and, and us maybe a better understanding as to why Saul was wanting to eradicate these people who are following this man named Jesus. The Hellenistic Jew, so was Stephen. So you can imagine Saul seeing this man named Stephen preach this, what he believed to be heretical, and saying, this is just an insult to our faith. This is an insult to our way of life. We need to rid the population of these people. Um, not only was he a faithful uh, Pharisee, Saul being a faithful Pharisee, we see what he writes in the book of Philippians, and I'll just read it real quickly. We read in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4, uh, Saul, or Paul writes, 
that although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Why? He circumcised the eighth day, which was of the law. It says, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. So very, uh, very well known, a, a very extremely noble tribe. So he's of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, he was a, a Jew of Jews, if you will. As to the law, a Pharisee. So not only was he a Jew, he was a Pharisee who all the Jews looked up to, pretty much. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. He had so much zeal for the Old Testament, for the Jewish practice, for uh, tradition, that he was willing to persecute those who resisted, or, or the Christians, the followers of Christ. So this is the man that we encounter, and it gives us a little better of an idea as to why he has this attitude, who he is, um, and, and why he's doing what he's doing, why he's fine for killing, with killing Stephen. We also read in Galatians chapter 1, toward the end of verse 13, he says, uh, I went beyond measure to try and persecute the church and destroy it. And that word destroy means almost like this idea of pillaging a city, destroying, completely destroying this faith, the church. And I was in advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. So very traditional in his faith, living it out, he was very committed to what he believed. And now we come to our text in chapter 9. And what he is planning to do, and what he's expecting to do, and what actually happens. In chapter 9, <clears throat> starting in verse 1, we read, Now Saul, this man, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So what he did in previous chapters, what he did with uh, being behind the execution of Stephen, wasn't enough. He said he, he has this attitude of, I'm not stopping till these people are completely destroyed. Because it says he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So because of this, he went to the high priest. Why did he go to the high priest? Well, it says in verse 2, he, he went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he goes to the high priest, requesting a letter for permission, basically, to, and I'm sure he didn't get any resistance whatsoever, to receive that. So if he found any followers of the way, this is the first time that it is recorded for these followers of Jesus to be called followers of the way. Could have been uh, called that because, obviously, Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It also... Uh, possibly could have been from uh, John the Baptist in Matthew 3 saying preparing the way of the Lord which comes from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 uh, regardless they're referred to as people of the way and he is so angry at these people 
that not only is he willing to persecute men, he's wanting to persecute women as well, which gives note that there are many faithful women already in uh, this faith, in the Christian faith. And this was, uh, as we've covered several times throughout the series, that was not uh, very normal in that time, in that, in that day, for women to uh, have such a forefront in their faith and to be heard. But they're making an impact enough to where Saul's saying, get the men, get the women, we need to get them out of here. I need your permission to go to Damascus and get these people. And think about this. Think of how Saul probably felt by just calling these people who refer to themselves as the way. He was probably thinking, these are some of the most arrogant people to call themselves followers of the way? I mean, my God of the Old Testament, my God, Yahweh, He's the way. Not, not this radical leader who came, Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son. He, he said He was the way. What an insult to our faith that they would be called people of the way. So he is very motivated to rid the world of these followers of this man named Christ. He was dead anyway. This man's dead. Jesus is dead. He's been buried. What's the point? All that's left are these, are these followers that are amassing a pretty big following now. He believes them to be a cult. And so he is motivated to get rid of them. But we see his plans fall flat, and so does he. Because when you get to verse 3, we read, As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. This, this heavenly light he encountered, and what happens next? And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Can you imagine what this man felt in this moment? He's going to Damascus. He's, he's wanting to uh, attack these followers of Jesus. He's struck down immediately. And not only is he struck down and, and he sees this great light around, surrounding him, he hears this voice that's calling his name. This is terrifying. I don't care how tough you think you are. I don't care how tough Saul thought he was. You know that he, I mean, he probably was nearly struck dead. And it says, Saul, or he says, this voice he hears from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't it interesting that this voice from heaven is saying, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He doesn't say, he doesn't even say, why are you persecuting other human beings. He says, why are you actively with your life and your actions, why are you persecuting me? We come to know that this voice is the voice of Jesus, but why would Jesus say that you are persecuting me? Well, we, we can learn from this that Saul's direct attack toward these people is a direct attack toward Christ. You mess with God's people, you're messing with Christ. You mess with the church, the bride of Christ, you're messing with Christ himself. And that is a, as what the Bible says, a fearful thing, isn't it? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And this attack that Saul is making 
is toward the bride of Christ. Now, his, his own bride. I, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, if, if someone messes with me, if someone gives me a hard time or, or whatever, makes me mad, you know, it is what it is. But if you mess with my wife, we're gonna have some problems, you know? And, and anybody that you hold near and dear to your life, it's, it's almost one of those things, you can mess with me, but don't mess with my loved ones. It's, I can't imagine, if I feel that way, how in the world does Jesus feel when persecutors persecute his bride? And Jesus had enough of Saul doing what he did, strikes him down, and he says, why are you persecuting me? You're hurting my people, you're hurting me. But it's so interesting because look at Saul's response. Scared to death, he says, who are you? Does he just say, who are you? Or ask, who are you? He says, who are you, Lord? He's already calling him Lord, which I guess if you encounter that, I mean, it's, it's, you, you pretty much make the assumption that this is a power that is great, far greater than you could ever be. And so he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus' response is, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Going back to the same concept, messing with uh, persecuting his own people. You're persecuting Jesus himself. So he's going to Damascus thinking that this man, Jesus, is dead and he's wanting to get rid of all these followers. Now he has an encounter with this man he thinks is dead. He's going to Damascus for one purpose. And now what happens? What does Jesus say? He says, but get up and enter the city. He doesn't tell him to turn around. He says, go into the city and it will be told you what you must do. So he's going to Damascus originally with one plan in mind. Now he's going with a completely different plan. He's gonna go into the same city, but he has been given strict instructions on what to do or he will be. So this man named Saul is, is humbled immensely. And you can't forget his entourage that, that's with him. Look at, uh, I'll read it real quick. In the 22nd chapter of the book of Acts, it says when Paul's giving his testimony, actually, his defense before the Jews, he says in 22.9, and those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So they, they see this light. And in verse um, seven, of our text, it says, the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So they see this, this bright light and hear some thunderous noise, but have no idea what's going on. They're probably just looking at Paul stunned on the ground as well, almost like dead men thinking, what is happening? And then this man who, who hates the followers of the way gets up and says, well, I gotta, I've got to go to Damascus now for different reasons and them thinking, what in the world has happened to this man? This man who radically hated Jesus of Nazareth has now had an extreme transformation. And not only was, <laughs> not only was he transformed, he was, he was completely humbled. Because in verse 8, it says, Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. Now, this man was, Saul, he couldn't see anything. But from this day forward, he would be able to see more than he had ever seen at this point with the eyes of faith. 
And he was blinded for three days without sight, and he didn't eat, nor did he drink. Can you imagine what was going through this man's mind those three days? I think sometimes, especially those of us who grew up uh, in, in a Christian home, grew up in the faith, it's hard to wrap your head around your whole worldview being completely shattered. Um, that's why it's in many ways hard to witness to people of different faiths because especially people that grown up in a specific faith, it takes time. Lifestyle evangelism, as it's called, uh, and also just persistence in your witness. But this man, I mean, in one encounter, he realized everything that I gave myself to as far as the interpretation of it has been wrong. My education, my upbringing, the reason why my parents probably told me they were proud of me, all of this, that being educated in the law but a wrong interpretation of it has been misinterpreted, it's wrong. And so he's probably reflecting on this these three days that his whole understanding of the Old Testament has been incorrect um, the one who he thought was dead is alive. And not only is he alive, he's reigning on the throne because he, he saw him and heard this voice saying, I am Jesus. Not only did Jesus reveal himself to Saul, reveal him with his sight, he revealed himself to his soul and this man would forever be changed. Those three days would set the tone for the rest of his life, for the rest of Scripture, with what he would end up writing, and for our faith. This man who hated Christians, who hated followers of the way, who was zealous to destroy them, is now one of them. That's the power of the God that we serve. That's the power of the God we're worshiping here tonight. So for us to try and limit God for whatever reason, whether it be uh, things that we are thinking about doing as a church, prayers that we are praying. We were talking about prayer this morning in the service. I wonder, as I was studying this, I wondered how many people prayed for the conversion of this man. It's not recorded, but I wouldn't be surprised if some followers of Jesus at this time leading up to it said, let's pray for this man who hates us and see what happens. I mean, we literally watched 3,000 people give their lives to Christ and the Holy Spirit is indwelling us. Let's pray for this man and see what happens. I guarantee you there are people praying for him and their prayers were answered. And if that doesn't motivate you or me to be spurned to pray for our lost family, our lost friends, I don't know what will, because this man, who I'm sure many people thought this man will never follow Christ, he won't leave us alone, now is brought into the family of God. I want to reread what I read when I started this sermon in Philippians as we uh, get ready to draw to a close. Philippians chapter 3, this time I'm going to start at verse 1. This is written by the one we were reading of earlier who just, who just got converted. 
And he's writing to a group of Christians who have been persecuted, and uh, he's wanting to motivate them to stay true to their faith and not listen to false gospels. And we get to verse 1 of chapter 3 in the book of Philippians in his letter. And this man writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself, and this is what I read earlier, might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And I'm going to read one more passage of Scripture that he wrote, one verse that you probably know by heart. Romans 1, verse 17, where he simply says, for, it is, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Before this man's conversion, before Saul was converted, he probably really dwelled on his accomplishments, on who he was, relying on himself. I mean, he had the list that any Jew would just wish to probably have one or two things. He had it all. If there, was, if there were ever a person that could earn the righteousness of God based on uh, this, this interpretation of the law, it would have been Saul of Tarsus. And what does he say he said, I count that all as loss. Because unless the righteousness of Christ dwells in me, unless I have his righteousness, it's waste. I mean, that's literally what he's saying. It's refuse. It's, 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 it's in some versions say, dung. It is complete waste. All these merits that I had, they don't mean a thing. And so maybe... You might be watching, and, and I don't know your heart. You might be here, and you think you have been made right with God because of your life, how you have lived. The, the high standards maybe you set for yourself and think, this has got to make me right with God. You, if, if you share the gospel with really anybody who is lost, and you ask them, and I don't want to say anybody, but the majority of people, and you ask them, how, how are you 
you know, if, if, and ask them if they're going to go to heaven and they say yes, and you ask them why, what is the common answer? I'm a good person. You know, I, I try to do good. I'm not perfect, but I try and do right. Uh, you, you might have some quote scriptures. I try to live by the golden rule. I try and treat people like I want to be treated. But according to Paul, he says, that's useless. It doesn't matter. Unless you have the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of the one whom he wanted, or who he hated and wanted to kill anybody who associated with him. Unless you have his righteousness, the one who died on the cross of Calvary for your sin and mine, you're never going to be made right with God. And before we as believers start just saying, yep, that's right, that's right, I I totally agree, and you should. (laughs) But before we just start thinking about that, there is probably a time in your life as well as mine where I thought the same thing. Or as a believer today, if we're not careful, we fall back into thinking that way. And we will, we'll, you know, get on the mountaintop and proclaim we're saved by grace through faith, not of our works, lest any person should boast. You know, we are saved by the grace of God alone. It's not our works that saves us, it's God. But then we live a different way. We sin and say, I got to do some things to get God to love me again. We might not ever verbalize that, but our minds might think that and we might live that way. I know I've done that plenty of times. If I've, if I've sinned thinking in my head, I can't come to God until I maybe read my Bible some and do this and do that. And then, then you know, he'll, he'll take me in again. I mean, I'm going to be frank. I've had those thoughts. Or the opposite direction. We're on fire for God. We're living for him. We're doing what's right. We're being faithful. We're reading the word of God. We're coming to church. We're doing all these things and saying, man, God must just think I'm the best. You know? It's that same type of thinking that, that Paul thought before he was saved. But shame on us because we should really know better. Now, I'm not saying that you know, God's fine with our sin, nor am I saying that when we're on fire, we shouldn't be excited and we shouldn't be grateful for what God is doing in our lives. But you know what I'm saying, that God loves you no matter what. And if you are, even if you are a believer, as the song puts it, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. And there's nothing you can do even after salvation, to earn God's favor. You already have it. So why don't we live like it, that we have God's favor? Because this man who wrote the majority of the New Testament also said, should we, paraphrasing, should we take this grace for granted and sin? By no means. This should motivate us all the more to live a faithful life. We are not saved by works and we are not... (laughs) kept in God's good graces by just living out our life by our good works. We are kept in the hand of an almighty God who saved us by grace through faith and simply because he loved you and drew you to himself. So my prayer with this text in reading this and preaching it is, if you don't know Jesus, that you, you might not have the same encounter in the sense that Saul had, 
But I pray that you have the same encounter in the fact that you are radically changed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And those of us who have trusted him, that we would walk in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace that has saved us and the grace that has changed us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power um, that it has because it is God-breathed. It is inspired, it is inerrant, and we praise you for that. Lord, thank you for this account that we, that we have of a man who was your enemy. As we sang earlier, there's a time when we were all enemies to you. But a man who was your enemy, who absolutely hated you and misunderstood the word of God, but was changed radically because of your love. Nothing that he had done, but simply because you loved him. And Lord, may we not just read this text as just an ancient text that says, that tells us of this account and us think, man, that was amazing that that happened. But may you open our eyes and open our heart and give us the faith that we need to realize that you still do the same thing because you did it in our lives. And if you did it in Saul's life, you will do it in any and every life who is willing. So I pray that we'll pray for the lost souls around us, those with whom we work, uh, our family, our friends, those we encounter every day, and that we will live in this amazing grace that you've extended to us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.